Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We um, are at that uh, point in Deuteronomy where we are coming to the end. Um, and many, 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 many times, maybe even most times, this parsha, this poem that we're about to look at, Ha'azinu, actually falls between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It falls on Shabbat Shuvah. So usually we're kind of reading this poem through the lens of we're, you know, we're getting ready for the big day. We're getting ready for the big day of Yom Kippur. We've come through the process of Elul uh, and our preparations. And we get to the new year and then we, we read this on Shabbat Shuvah. This year, because of the calendar, you know that we add a leap month in the Jewish calendar. We don't have, like we add February 29th to our Roman calendar to rectify the calendar so that, you know, Christmas doesn't wind up in the spring. Um, we do the same in the Hebrew calendar, but we add a leap month <clears throat> to the calendar, a second month of Adar. So Adar Aleph and Adar Bet. So that makes big jumps in the calendar sometimes. But what it, what, it, what the calendar this year means for us is that we're reading Ha'azinu, we're reading this poem after Yom Kippur and just before Sukkot. <clears throat> so even though the poem itself doesn't change, as you well know, how we look at Torah, how we look at words of Torah change based on where we are. Uh, and so I thought I would bring you some commentary this year um, that actually addresses the idea of tying Ha'azinu to this moment of being after Yom Kippur, because frankly, <laughs> we're really right after Yom Kippur. It was yesterday. <laughs> Tekiah Gedola was last night. Right. So we are mamash immediately after Yom Kippur. There's really nothing else going on for a lot of us other than, wow, that that was a lot. <laughs> right. So um, for good and for hard and for all of the reasons we love the high holidays, um, it's really hard to jump into a whole nother kind of thing. And um, or at least for me. So um, I kind of like it that that coming off this intensity of Yom Kippur, there's a way to look at this. Um, liturgical poetry that feels um, really relevant to kind of um, being so saturated with liturgy, with music, with practice, with reflection, with, you know, challenging, hopefully, you know, words from sometimes the prayers themselves that like call us out and, um, and, and challenge us in good ways. So I've brought you a few of those. Let's, let's take, I want to take a look at, um, at the text, a little bit of the text. Um, and um, and we're going to focus really on, for a little bit anyway, on the first few lines of this text. For the background of this, um, it, is, it is evident to most scholars, there is agreement by most scholars, that this is very old. This is a very old text. We see archaic Hebrew here that we don't see uh, in later writing which also mean, makes the poem very difficult to translate because if you, you know, language changes. And if you don't have attestations of words in other places where it's evident what they mean, then it makes it a little harder to translate. Also, there can be scribal errors and just over time, not seeing other evidence, you know, for these words, it just over time, mistakes in them or whatever can, and misuse even of them can be uh, an issue in translation as well. <clears throat> 
we see a lot of the pairings that that are in this poem. We see several of them in Ugaritic. So you'll recall Ugarit is one of the parent languages, one of the parent cultures of ancient Israelite culture and language. Um, you, we look at Ugarit, we look at Sumer, right? So Ugaritic Sumerian texts, these are the parent languages of Proto-Hebrew. Um, and then we get ancient Israelite Hebrew. So since we see a lot of these couplets, these, you know, the kind of matches in this poem, since we see it attested in Ugaritic, we can be pretty certain that this is very old. So possibly 1100s BCE, scholars, you know, they'll agree it's old, but they're going to argue about how old, <laughs> of course. So, um, so we're not sure, but it's, uh, but it's an old text. So it's placed here. It's carefully placed here, but it is not, it is not the Deuteronomist. The Deuteronomist has taken a piece that's been well, you know, used, <laughs> well-worn, uh, and put it at the end of Moshe's speech to the people. So why? Why would you take a really old poem and put it at the end of this speech as Moshe's giving it to the people before they're about to cross over? So one possibility is that because it is a really, possibly it was familiar to Israelites and possibly beloved. And you know, if you want to get the people to sign on to your Deuteronomic view of the world and the charge that goes with what the Deuteronomist wants the Israelites to be doing, then you might want to close the whole thing with something that, that they know and love, that they know and like. So whatever the reason, the Deuteronomist closes uh, Moshe's speech with this poem that kind of recaps everything a little bit um, and is really... Um, it's what we call a tochacha on some level. It's tochacha. It's a rebuke of the people. Um, but the point is that the rebuke is they will go astray and then they will be brought back in love. We see this a lot with the Deuteronomist because, of course, the Deuteronomist is responding to the exile. The Deuteronomist is responding to the fact that Israel has fallen and um, and so needs needs to reassure the people that if they – if they return to the covenant, if they return to what yud heh wants from them, they will be taken back in love, which is also, of course, the theme of the High Holidays. So see how it all goes together there? See that? All right. So let's um, let's look at the beginning of this poem. Um, I'm trying to see. Robert, would you be willing to read? We're just going to listen for a while. It's a poem. So this is, imagine you're listening to poetry. So we're just, we're just going to listen for a little while. Okay, go ahead, Robert. Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words I utter. May my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like showers on young growth, like droplets on the grass. For the name of the Lord I proclaim, give glory to our God. The rock, his deeds are perfect. Yea, all his ways are just. A faithful God, never false. True and upright is he. Children, unworthy of him, that crooked, perverse generation, their baseness has played him false. Do thus requite the Lord, O dull and witless people? Is not he the Father who created you, fashioned you, and made you endure? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of ages past. Ask your father, he will inform you. 
your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave nations their homes and set the divisions of man, he fixed the boundaries of people in relation to Israel's numbers. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own allotment. He found him in a desert region, in an empty howling waste. He engirded him, watched over him, guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle who rouses his nestlings, gliding down to his young, so did he spread his wings and take him, bear him along on his pinions. The Lord alone did guide him, no alien God at his side. He set him atop the highlands to feast on the yield of the earth. He fed him honey from the crag and oil from the flinty rock, curd of kine and milk of flocks with the best of lambs and rams of Bashan and he goats with the very finest wheat and foaming grape blood was your drink. So Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and gross and coarse. He forsook the God who made him and spurned the rock of his support. They incensed him with alien things, vexed him with abominations. They sacrificed to demons, no gods. Gods they had never known, new ones who came but lately, who stirred not your father's fears. You neglected the rock that begot you, forgot the God who brought you forth. The Lord saw and was vexed and spurned his sons and his daughters. He said, I will hide my countenance from them and see how they fare in the end. For they are a treacherous breed, children with no loyalty in them. They incensed me with no gods, vexed me with their futilities. I'll incense them with a no folk, vex them with a nation of fools. For a fire has flared in my wrath and burned to the bottom of Sheol, has consumed the earth and its increase, eaten down to the base of the hills. I will sweep misfortunes on them, use up my arrows on them, wasting famine, ravaging plague, death, uh, deadly pestilence, and fanged beasts will I loose against them with venomous creepers and dust. The sword shall deal death without, a shell of terror within, to youth and maiden alike, as well as the aged. Uh, I, I might have reduced them to naught, made their memory cease among men, but for the fear of the taunts of the foe, their enemies who might misjudge and say, our own hand has prevailed. None of this was wrought by the Lord. For they are a folk, uh, they are folk void of sense, lacking in all discernment. Were they wise, they would think upon this, gain insight into their future. How could one have routed a thousand or two, put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them? The Lord had given them up, for their rock is not like our rock, in our enemy's own estimation. Ah, the vine for them is from Sodom, from the vineyards of Gomorrah. The grapes for them are poison, a bitter growth, their clusters. Their wine is the venom of asps, uh, the petalous poison of vipers. Lo, 
I have it all put away, sealed up in my storehouses to be my vengeance and recompense at the time that their foot falters. Yea, their day of disaster is near and destiny rushes upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and take revenge for his servants when he sees that their might is gone and neither bond nor free is left. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in whom they sought refuge. Who are the fat of their offerings? Who ate the fat of their offerings and drank their libation wine? Let them rise up to your help and let them be a shield unto you. See them that I am he. There is no God beside me. I deal death and give life. I wounded and I will. Have you ever seen this? Comes with a one. None can deliver me from my hand. Lo, I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, when I wet my flashing blade and my hand lays hold on judgment, vengeance will I wreak on my foes. Will I deal to those who reject me? I will make my arrows drunk with blood as my sword devours flesh. Blood of the sane and the captive from the long-haired enemy chiefs. O nations, acclaim his people, for he'll avenge the blood of his servants, wreak vengeance on his foes, and cleanse the land of his people. Moses came together with the Hosea, son of Nun, and recited all the words of this poem in the hearing of the people. And when Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words with, with, uh, with which I have warned you this day. Enjoin them upon your children, that they may observe faithfully all the terms of this teaching. For this is not a trifling thing for you. It is your very life. Through it, you shall long endure the land that you are to possess upon crossing the Jordan. Okay. Thanks, Robert. So, all right. Yeah, beautifully read. You can hear in the poetry, the reason I didn't want to stop and interrupt is you can hear uninterrupted the trauma of a people that has been vanquished. It's, it's raw and it's strong language and imagery for a reason. It is a people trying to reckon with what happened. How could this happen? And coming so close on the heels of Yom Kippur and everything I've been thinking about in terms of my sermon, I, I don't mean to be overly dramatic. No. I really don't. Um, but I, yeah, I, yeah, I would ask you. us to like take ourselves forward 75 years. Would you get these people under control, please? Oh my God. So um, take yourself out 75 years Suggest, and, and I'm going to suggest, in terms of listening to what we just heard, if we do nothing about climate control, if we do nothing about institutional injustices, if we do nothing about the growing gap between rich and poor, if we do nothing about solving right hunger and water solutions, uh, you know, issues for people, it, it just if we just think about if we don't get our act together and don't change some things. Could we not be listening to a poem very similar to this? What happened? Right? Like, 
the earth dried up and the heavens were copper and bronze, right? We have that language in Torah as well. And then the food was poison and then the children got sick and then, right? And then, and then, and then, and then this happened to them. This is not a poem written from a theological standpoint because, oh, we, 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 we want to imagine this kind of a God. And so we're going to sit down and write this lovely poem about this God. This is a people writing out of trauma of what actually happened. So for me, I guess this year in particular, Ha'azinu feels like a, a warning. It's always been a warning. That's why it was put here. Moshe reads it to the people, even in the author's imag- imagination as a warning. But for me, it's like this year, it really does feel like, all right, people, are you going to take in everything we just finished singing? Are we going to take in everything we just finished asking? Are we going to really take in everything we just said we want that we said we're ready to work on and work for and work towards? Are we, are we really going to do that? This poem is like, well, cause there's consequences, right? If, if we don't um, figure out how to, lean into the best of who we are to bring that forward, to address the massive, massive amounts of, of issues and challenges um, that modernity brings. Barry, I see that you had your hand up. Do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, you pretty much said uh, what I wanted, but I would add that to me, Hazimu thing is, reminds me of gangster rap lyrics, taking vengeance on your, on your foes. And, um, and and I'm guessing that you no, know, it's well. Uh, we know that historically speaking, this was written you know after the fact, so <laughs> nobody really got warned uh, about what's coming. Um, but I think there's a meaning to the fact that it was put you know in in this you know people are happy, people are going to enter the promised land. Uh, it's a very exciting moment, and now they are they have to listen to this uh, party pooper telling them about all the all the uh, uh, terrible things that are going to happen. Um, and and when they happen, know that this is your fault. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know of a lot of you know civilizations who 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 take it that way. Mostly, it's blaming our, blaming the oppressor, blaming the, um, you know, the uh, the haves, and the empires and imperialism. Um, it's it's an interesting interesting thought. I think of this difference between you know this oppressed people and others. Thanks, thanks, Barry, and Melinda. Thank you. Um, the the verse that jumped out at me in a way that I had a strong emotional reaction to um, because it spoke so clearly to me about the current plague of misinformation and echo chambers on social media is verse 21. Sorry? Yeah, please tell us about that. (laughs) They incensed me with no gods vexed me with their futilities. I'll incense them with a no folk, vex them with a nation of fools. 
we have built these echo chambers and these these little serotonin hits from people clicking like on something we shout into the ether that doesn't matter and and god asks of us that we build communities that matter where we actually connect with each other and do work that matters and we have a whole nation of people just screaming into a void about that doesn't matter um yeah that hit me hard 21 if anybody else wants to reread well, that um, i love I, what i love about that is that it's it's like right if you keep fueling you know all your attention to no gods you know to all, to all this like garbage what do you, what do you expect the people is going to be right your what is your society what do you expect your society is going to look like right a nation and of the fools. fiction people we think we know no folk a we nation do not of have authentic fools. connections right <laughs> to each other or to truth right like this this whole idea that you know post-truth like every time i see that phrase post-truth i like i panic a little existentially i just panic i'm like i cannot believe we're using that and and i'm not i'm not criticizing the people using it i think it's accurate but i i cannot believe that we are using a term now that we all agree is possible the time we're living in does that make sense like i cannot believe I'm, sh- I am, I remain completely horrified and shocked that we are using the word no truth, that we're going to be living in an era of you, you can't, you can't go, well, that's not true. But because says who? Like, it's like, I, I don't even know what to, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> right? Like, how I feel about the phrase fire. Where we can't even agree on what's true. Like, I, I, I really don't know what to do with that. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that right? It, it jumps out as, because in some ways we don't change all that much, right? This really don't change all that much. The same things that the Deuteronomist is yelling about, guess what? <laughs> it's still our Achilles heel, right? As humanity, as, you know, homo sapiens, we haven't changed that much. Um, <clears throat> anyway, in terms of what our weaknesses are, right? Hopefully we keep changing and evolving in in terms of how to address that and how to hold that and how how to understand that. Notice how many mental health professionals we have here uh, on this screen, right? So, you know, like hopefully we we get better at analyzing it, holding it, treating it, addressing it, you know, and all of that, understanding it deeply. um, But, but our proclivities don't, you know, really change all that much. Um. Oh, look who it is. It's Maria. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hey, Maria. So um, anyone else have something you want to say? Sorry, I'm you're... late. I was oh. rushing to get here. Oh, well, we love that, Maria. We love that. Okay. So um, so I want to share with you some, um, some thoughts uh, from Pardes uh, in Jerusalem, and then um, maybe one or two other. I pulled up a bunch of stuff for y'all. Um, goodies. So, um, so this idea that, so, you know, you know, my, that I subscribe to the theory that, that Yom Kippur was originally tied to Sukkot. Y'all know this, who have learned with me before that Yom Kippur had nothing to do with Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah was the day announcing the month of Yom Kippur, right? So Rosh Hashanah, boo boo, you blow a shofar so that everybody remembers because every, every new year, uh, every 
new month would have been, you know, commemorated. And so you blow shofar on the month. That's the big one where you're going to have, remember this new moon is different people. This is the new moon of the month of Yom Kippur. That's why Rosh Hashanah is only called Yom Tru'ah in the Torah. That's all that's said about it in the Torah is Yom Tru'ah, the day of the Tru'ah. So then you come to um, Yom Kippur, the big day where we clean it all up. Why is Yom Kippur where it is on the calendar? Because it is right before Sukkot. You clean up everything that's going on between you all so that you can come to the last harvest festival of the year ready to party, right? The, the fall harvest is the last harvest before the winter. If you have food from Sukkot, your family will survive the winter. So this is not just, yay, we had a good harvest. This is, yay, we're not going to die over the winter. This was a major blowout. Sukkot was a major party. If you really want to be able to do that well, you need to clean up some stuff, right? So Yom Kippur is about making it right between the people their relationships and their relationship to God. So they could let it all go on Sukkot and have a massive celebration of life on Sukkot. That's, I believe that is absolutely makes way more sense than anything else. Given it was an agricultural calendar, right? Duh. Okay. So, so for me, yay. Okay. Get all that. So, so tying the work now that we understand and, and then, too, on some, on some level, the um, having people over is the only reason to clean house, right? Exactly, right? Don't you clean differently? Don't you serve on different dishes when people are coming over? Right? Oh, crap, where's that service piece from my grandmother, right? So um, so we, so that's what we're doing. You know, we're cleaning up to, to, uh, to have a, a company um, and celebrate. And so the work of Yom Kippur has always been that, to prepare for Sukkot. But we don't really talk about it that way during the holiday. But now that we're at, we're at Ha'azinu and we're at Sukkot, the rabbis have always tied those together because often Ha'azinu is read before um, Sukkot. So there is a lot there that we just don't dig up a lot because we're so focused on um, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. We don't really focus much on Sukkot. And I'm going to say, you hear me say this a lot and I'm going to, I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm going to add something to it. You hear me say all the time we've lost Sukkot that it's a real shame that we do all this work and then we go back to work. We do all this work at the holidays. We do all this introspection. It breaks us open in really important ways. And then we go back to our lives because we've lost the party. So y'all have heard me talk about this forever. Ad nauseum. I'm not going to say any more about it other than last time I said this, one of y'all probably Judith Ubik said, well, why don't we get serious about thinking about new ways then to to do Sukkot, because we're not going to build a sukkah. We're just not. Yes, KI does a lovely sukkah for you. Um, and Melinda's going to build one. Okay, awesome. Um, if we're not going to build a sukkah, what, how can we, how can we think about this? And this year, it struck me in reading all this stuff I prepared for you that maybe one way to think about it is not about actually going into the sukkah, but, ca- but can we come up with some ways that we can activate the same things that living in the sukkah would have. So why do we live in the sukkah, you know, to come out of our boxes, out of our concrete sense of safety, to move back into the natural world, to, to, to feel a sense of frailty, but that we're surrounded by beauty, um, that it remembers the time in the desert when we relied on God and God took care of us and we trusted that relationship. Um, all, all that stuff. Like, is there, 
are there ways we can go go back to something that does that for us? I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a retreat. I don't know if that's after Yom Kippur. We do plan a party. I don't know, right? You know, if it's that we we commit to spending a little bit more time in nature, uh, that we plan something in a park together, just some way to really pull on, draw on the power of the imagery of the Sukkah and Sukkot. Um, because I feel like we, we need one more step. Yom Kippur ends and it's like, wait, that's it? Like, wait, what? Like, I'm in this great place. It's almost like you get all dressed up and you put on your best stuff and you have reservations for dinner and right. You're all ready to go. And the person doesn't show up and knock at the door and take you out. Like, it's like you do all this preparation. Then it's like, uh, okay. Bye everybody. (laughs) Anyway. So I want to, I want to be thinking about that a little bit with y'all about, you know, maybe, maybe we do. And look, I'm the, I'm the last one who wants to show up at something at a certain time, having to do something right after Yom Kippur. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's not right after Yom Kippur. Like we have a little break and then, so I don't know. So help me think about it. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to look at my notes a little bit from, so let's go back to um, the, the beginning of the text um, because it's this imagery that, that the Deuteronomist chooses from the poet to put here. So the, the poet puts here, Ha'azinu. <clears throat> so Shemaim, so listen up heavens and I will speak. Um, let the earth hear the words that I utter. So again, you see the, the bi- biblical parallelism. This is what, remember, we've talked about it. This is what makes biblical poetry beautiful. This is what makes it meaningful. This is the art form, is to match these two, right? Listen up heavens here, earth. Um, so this is, this is the couplet here. So anyway, that, so just notice those pairings. That's what makes biblical poetry clever and sophisticated in its time and in its, um, genre, I guess. All right. So let's look at this. Let's look at this. Ya'arof kamatar likhi, tizal katal imarti, kisi'irim ale deshe. Okay, this imagery, you're talking about a land that is dependent. Oh, do I need to share my screen? I bet I do. <laughs> Thank you, whoever that was. Rebecca, so you see why I can't be left on my own? You see, right? Bert wasn't here, so I said, Rebecca, please. All right, did that work? Did I share my screen? No. No. Okay. So glad I could have you all here today. Okay. Um, now there it is. Okay. So you're living, we're talking about a land that depends on dew and rain. Rain is one way that, that uh, plants in Israel survive. Any of y'all who have been to Israel and have the fantastic, amazing madrichim um, that they have in Israel, they go through a very rigorous course to be tour guides in Israel. Um, you know, one of my best friends in the universe, Renee Gutman is a wonderful moraderech. Um, and, uh, a guide and um, the guides, if you've been to any trip to Israel, will tell you they know everything about every plant in Israel and how it collects rain or dew. Every plant in Israel, particularly mid and south, has a very specific technology for capturing dew and rain because that's the only way life happens in the desert. 
those of you who are expert in desert, desert, you know, whatever it's called, not fauna, the other thing, flora, know this as well. Um, but the poet is evoking a people who knows this very well, who knows what happens with dew and with rain. All right. So what, so may my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. The English is terrible, just terrible. There's not great ways to put this in English, but the question becomes, what is Ya'aruf? What, what does that mean? Ya'aruf. So that's one place this, that, that our traditional commentators uh, go a little crazy and have a party about translating this in different ways. Um, and that, that, the, that Moshe's words and teachings are coming down with this imagery of dew and of gentle rain. This is not rain like a rainstorm. Matal and tal are not heavy rains because what happens over the summer, the, the ground dries up. Then what happens? There's cracks and fissures. There's a crust. And if a heavy rain comes, what happens? It doesn't go in the ground. Instead, it causes flash flooding, right? So in Israel, if you're driving around at certain times of the year and you're anywhere near uh, certain kinds of geological structures, the radio, you keep the radio on a certain channel. So it tells you, get the hell out of there now because rain is coming and there hasn't been enough dew Tal umatal, these two words, there hasn't been enough. And that means it's going to be flash flooding and cars are washed away. So it is a very serious fact of life in Israel. So the poet is not just using dewy language here. The poet is being very serious about what it means. That if Moshe's words, if when what are Moshe's words? Teachings. If the teachings about what holiness demands from us come gently, early, at the right time, just after summer, it can soften and, 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 um, I don't, my brain has stopped, soften that crust so that when the rain does come in the winter, it will penetrate the ground. So this is way more than what it looks like. This is saying after high holidays, all of this, we come into high holidays, hopefully having done the work of Elul, but we come in with a whole year of crust. (laughs) We come in with a whole year of hardness. We come in with a whole year of being guarded, of painful experiences, of doubts in ourselves, of ways we prove ourselves untrustworthy, of ways that we fail our own high bar, uh, you know, of our values and who we want to be. So we come into Elul like that. And hopefully the practices of the high holidays, and I'm taking this from Pardes, from um, Mike Fuhr uh, on uh, Pardes' website, has a, a podcast on Ha'azinu that, I, that he talks about this, um, that the goal of the Chagim, the, the goal of the holidays is to allow the Matar and the Tal, to allow the teachings, the practices, the liturgy, the music, all of it, the fasting, the longing, the community, the yearning, the being together, the doing what we had to on our calendars to make sure we could be together, to, to allow all of that to begin to break up the crust. 
to let it be matar and tal, to let it be gentle, easy. Well, it's not easy, right? But but not but not the storm either, because if the storm comes now, we're not ready, right? If we if, if we have a real challenge put in front of us right now, we're exhausted. We are not ready. But it can be the tal and matar, and that Sukkot is a time to really go out into nature, to be in the sukkah, to leave our routines, um, to leave the way we're used to doing it, not to just go back after Yom Kippur and start all over a, a year the way we are used to, but instead to gather, to offer gratitude, to eat, to really, really eat. That's why you fast. So that when you come together and party and celebrate, that you really eat. We should be thinking of looking up new recipes for something we've been wanting to try for a long time. If I could learn how to make a good moussaka, people, my life would be a different place to live in. Just one good moussaka recipe, somebody. So um, so that, right, that we should be doing that. That's what all the work was for, to prepare the ground. Because when we prepare the ground, then it's not rain that gives life. It's not the rain that is life-giving. It is rain that actualizes potential. The rain actualizes what's going on already underground and allows that to be, uh, allows that to be productive, allows that to be produce. Um, it allows it to become fruitful, allows us to become growthful and being out in the sukkah, this, this teacher, Mike Fuhrer on Pardes says, there are a lot of grasses that if you put them in a greenhouse, they don't grow. They, they grow to a certain point and then they just fall over and die. Why? Because there's no wind pushing against them. And if there's no wind pushing against them, they don't get strong, right? Think of certain trees, you know, it's, it's trees that, that have to, to figure out how to deal with wind that, okay, I just personified trees. I get that, but okay. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like they, they actually do the work of resisting the wind. That's what strengthens them. And that we go out into the sukkah, we go out, you know, to be outside of our habits, outside of our routines, outside of our homes, outside of our illusions of security, outside of our crackly, dusty, cynicism and boredom and despair and distraction and going outside and being together and eating and partying and making love and dressing up and painting and whatever that that, that's what allows the rain to penetrate that's what allows the teaching in that's what Moshe's words are they're teaching thank you Perry so like if we can if we can allow, but we have to do the practice of Sukkot, I guess is what I'm saying, to allow Yom Kippur in, to allow that work, to bring forth growth. We need to expose ourselves to the wind so that we get strong, but not strong from getting knocked down and getting back up, but strong from getting blown around a little because we've put ourselves out there, because we take a risk. We maybe ask someone for coffee because it's somebody we're interested in maybe starting a friendship with. Maybe we ask someone to lunch. Maybe we take a risk to make our lives look a little different than it's looked. That's what allows the, the moisture to get beneath that surface and allows then 
this grass to grow. And I'm not making this up. This is this this is all someone else's. Te- this this is all teaching from the tradition, which I find really beautiful. But again, because we don't read this around Sukkot, we don't usually talk about this. But that that, that grass is strengthened by by the winds, uh, and the the rabbis cleverly misread Barry. In case you're wondering, uh, this kasiirim they read the sin here as a samech. So they actually creatively reread, they misread this word to be storm winds, right? That it's storm winds that actually help us as grass blades to grow. But we have to expose ourselves to that. We have to literally put ourselves out there. (laughs) That's what Sukkot is. You've done the work. You've done the reflection. You've prayed. You've gotten in touch with longing. You've gotten in touch with wanting to be better. You've gotten in touch with cleaning it up. You've gotten in touch with the ways you messed it up last year, the ways you're really sorry, the ways you really want to be different. Now, Sukkot says literally, then you have to put yourself out there, out there, outside. (laughs) You can't just go back to watching television. You can't just go back to CNN and Foreign Affairs Magazine and expect your life to to produce beautiful fruits. You have to put yourself. And that is the embrace of the Sukkah, says the tradition. So um, there's this lovely uh, image. I cannot stand the language. It's a very orthodox website. I hate the language. What can I tell you? But I love the imagery here. Um, I love this. The days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, which is where we are now, are halfway between the first Tishrei festivals, right, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the second, meaning the end of Sukkot, which is Shemini Atzeret and Semchus Torah, right, that come at the end of Sukkot. Um, and um, so uh, Rav Elchanan near here is turning to the language uh, of Song of Songs, of the love poetry of the Song of Songs, his left hand under my head, his right hand embracing me. So this is the Song of Songs. This is love poetry, erotic love poetry that Rabbi Akiva manages to convince the rabbis is about the love affair between God and Israel and therefore gets it into the canon. But Emelinda, I'm very proud that we have a tradition that has erotic love poetry, very graphic erotic love poetry uh, as part of the canon. Um, And I do love this, that like, what if we understood the divine to have one arm under our head and one arm wrapped around us? What an incredibly beautiful image of being held by the universe. The transition between judgment, right? The left hand under our head, our head is about thinking, is about judgment, right? Which is what we did on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, really think about the ways we've done wrong, really think about who we want to be. That one of God's arms is under our head. For me, that's the Shekhinah, right? The beautiful imagery of the indwelling presence, the feminine divine, one of her arms under our head where, that we used to think about who we want to be, judge who we've been, as does God in our you know, traditional liturgy. Um, and then the other arm enveloping and allowing us to be fully embraced in her presence, quoting the, the line here from Song of Songs, the king brought me into his room. And yes, that's exactly what it means. The king brought me to his chamber. It's exactly what it means, people. What an incredibly beautiful image of the sukkah, right? Of going out into the sukkah is we're going into the bridal chamber with God. 
that we are going into a chamber where God puts that we lay down in the grass and God has one arm under our head where we think and make all these decisions about who we want to be and how we want to change, what candidates we're voting for, who will support the legislation that we believe is going to make things better. And then God's other arm at Sukkot wraps around us just being about love and celebration and trust and faith that we can do it, that we're good enough to do it, that we're strong enough to do it. If we put ourselves out there, love that. You got to love that. All right. So, um, all right. So that's one image I really loved from uh, looking up this stuff in this context. Here's another one um, from Betsy Forrester. And um, talking about heaven being up there, Moshe's talking about, right, um, heaven and earth, which is down here. Uh, However, if we consider heaven as a metaphysical space that holds what is ultimately right, true, just, and good, notice this word true. Yes, people, there is truth. There is still truth, even though people want to deny that there's truth, there is still truth. Um, That heaven can be both eternal and is closely mingled with the deepest parts of ourselves as we are capable of bringing it. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, with them just past, we feel ourselves to be pure and receptive to the still silent voice that whispers the truth of our lives and connects us to divine love and the divine will. Um, And I wanted to point this out to you, this line of Torah. God found us in a howling waste. She doesn't use that word, but look at the word right here, people. Yalel. You remember a little sermon about this recently? Right? Yalala, Yivava. The howling waste, that's where we find Torah. In the howling waste is where our people found faith. I had to leave that whole paragraph of my sermon out because it was just way too long. But um, but Zornberg does a beautiful piece with that. The Dafka, our people, finds faith in the howling you know, waste where the coyotes are. Believe me, I live up here with them and they are terrifying. All right. The is that encircling. Um, as a possible allusion to Sukkot, right? So God encircles uh, Yaakov, uh, as we have in the poetry. Sukkot may be the perfect next step toward linking our earthly selves with our divine uh, potential. We relinquish our need for security and open our hearts to the joy of being and the gifts of living. So I'm going to tell you all to open you go. I'll app. take your cart for you. Yes. Uh, Lisa, honey, can you mute yourself? Um that we can open that bath oil you've been saving, okay? okay? Break out the good china. Take out your crystal. Al Avens, for your birthday, you need to get the most delicious, fattening cake or dessert ever for your birthday. Do you hear me? That is what this message is, Al. Al, you're going to be, what, 90? How old are you going to be, Al, on this next birthday? Oh, oh. Give it a try. <laughs> you're gonna give it a try. That I appreciate that. So um, you're gonna be how old, Al? Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven. All right, people, right there. You see it right there. That's the key. Al Avens and his amazing wife, Lynn, right? To stay, to stay open to life, right? To to challenge, to putting ourselves out there, to relation at 97. Look at him. God, what a teacher for all of us. But it's not, it, that's the meaning of Sukkot is that we, we party. Al didn't get to 97 like this, um, not leaning into the moments we are offered as celebration. 
and the moments were offered as pleasure, right? That, that, that's what Sukkot is about. You cap off all the work with pleasure, permitted pleasure, but pleasure, right? Things that we are, that we're supposed to come out of all of this ready to do a year leaning in and celebrating that we're alive and that we can change, that we look up at the stars and they become divine sparks. When we return to our real homes after Sukkot, we carry those sparks within us, right? That, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be this time of not just work, uh, but also a time where we come back together. And that's what I want us to figure out a little better how to do um, is how to enjoy feeling like we've really, we dug in, right? We, we did, we showed up and we did some good work. And like, how do we, and usually, like, usually people are exhausted from having to show up because they've been schlepping to services, right? So I get it that it's not necessarily that the Jews want to go somewhere else and do something else. But I wonder, I don't know, I think maybe we should think about having an outdoor on the patio. And I, and I, I mean, even after COVID, like, Instead of maybe being in the sukkah, because maybe we're not so attached to that, but we, we go outside on the patio at KI and have a lovely wine and cheese with a band and we just dance and cut loose. I don't know, but I need y'all's help. So um, because this this year it really did resonate with me that all this work we did is supposed to culminate in eating really good food with really good company, laughing, enjoying, telling stories, being outside being ready to take risks, being ready to imagine we can do it differently um, and really, you know, allowing that, you know, to, to color the year um, that that's coming. Cause that's the point is, is to color the year that's coming. Right. Um, hang on. My computer's going to die. Why is it not? It looks like it's plugged in, but it's not. Oh my goodness. Oh, buckets. I know. Okay. Minor catastrophe. Okay. All right, people, I want your thoughts. I'm done. That's all I got for you. So I, I'm done. I dance after Yom Kippur, right? And by the way, that was the dance they wanted. Uh, they wanted their teens to hook up. That was kind of the point. Talk about the fruitfulness of Sukkot. It was like, um, you know, let's get the fruitfulness going, people. Emma Linda. Uh, I was going to say that I, I do have pretty strong feelings about the um, building a fort aspect. And I think that fort building is a really uh, wonderful multi-generational activity. We do it at least twice a year at the church that I served. Um, bed sheets and binder clips and all the kids of all ages turn the whole playground into a fort. And uh, the rules of fort building are everybody participates, everybody's included, everybody's ideas matter. It's a whole religious education workshop uh, that everybody loves. So I, I feel like fort building is a really important component and uh, what a wonderful multi-gen celebration. It is. It truly is. Um, and, you know, when, when you do it, it, it really is. It's, it's amazing. And I might have just volunteered to help organize a thing for next year. So just keep it in mind. Judith, I'll help you. Oh, all right. <laughs> and Melinda and Judith, I got to start writing down the committee. <laughs> It sounds wonderful, right? Don't you think? Yes, it sounds wonderful. And Amy, thank you for remembering that I asked you a while back if we could do something about Sukkot. I love this today. Thank you so much. Yeah. And happy birthday, Al. <laughs> um, Lisa says she has a great idea. Maria's hand is up and George's hand is up. Lisa. Good. 
they all volunteered. <laughs> Lisa, was that a volunteer? Or do you want to say something? Did we lose Lisa? All right, maybe we'll get her back. Maria, then George. Um, I was just going to say, I just thought that was a beautiful teaching. I never looked at it like that before. And um, now I'm going to look at Sukkot like it's a grounding experience, going almost back to basics, like nature and people and inclusivity. I mean, we always leave it space and have to go in case somebody comes in. It doesn't matter. It's a stranger. So I just really love that I was here today. I love your teaching. I think we need to get this out more. It's the next logical step after the hot head. So thank you. Yeah, back to basics. I like that. Right. It's literally grounding. Right. The Harvest Festival meant you were digging like you were digging stuff out of the ground. Like that's what came after Yom Kippur was going to the ground and pulling stuff out of it that you're going to eat. <laughs> like that. And then you eat it at a party. Right. And they, you know, remember the priests like put their old linen pants, their underpants. They made torches out of their underpants and like did throwing torches that were on fire. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm, Sukkot was a wild party people. So like, but it's back to basics, right? Like, Right back to eating with gusto, with with company that helps us come out of our shells, right? You know, and helps us be bigger, you know, in the ways that are both a little embarrassing and well, it's just that, you know, yeah, it's just back to basics, being together, eating, like singing, dancing, like all that stuff that you, we've been in our heads and in our hearts and in our spirit for the high holidays. That's important. So co-right is about, okay, so what do you do with that? Back to basics, but back to basics with a different perspective. And, you know, and, but it's, yeah, like, and, and, and now more than ever, I feel like we need that. People dealing with modernity need to go back to basics, right? We're, we're not the in basics. logical step, I think. Yeah. Right. The tradition has so much wisdom in it. <laughs> you know? It's like, it. yeah, does the next logical step. Like, yeah. yeah. Dana? You know, uh, because I don't want to say anything about COVID right now, but, you know, we have Shabbat at the beach. We could have Sukkah at the beach. Um, yes, we are doing Simcha's Torah at the beach. Yeah. So, so you know, yeah. we, we did get a bit of a jump on this, um, and we are doing Simcha's Torah at the beach. So keep your eyes open for um, that. We're not sure what it's going to be. Don't tell anybody. We're not sure exactly what it's going to be because um, we're not bringing it over to the beach. Um, but we did decide that we want to celebrate Sukkot together. You know, with, and with, yeah, without going into any detail, when you had um, your Rosh Hashanah for families at the park, was that did that turn out well? We had over three hundred people. That's so great. can we use the park instead of the beach? Some of us can't do beach at all. Um, the, the, we can't for simplest, there was something about permitting. Um, so that, that was an issue. Um, so, so no, but, but we, but we want to look at doing something like park, you know, more frequently in the coming year. Um, because we, we realize we're not going to know where we are with COVID. We always feel a little behind the eight ball planning stuff, you know, because, um, of, how things move. But if we start planning now for several outdoor activities, we know they won't be canceled. So, well, God willing, like it's not so bad that those would be canceled, but seriously. So we, 
we are planning a lot for you know park situations for the coming year, feeling like at least that way we can program knowing we'll get together for sure. Right. Everything's been so up in the air. There's like, well, how can we possibly program a third going into our second year, our third year of this um, at some point, you know, because it's a year and a half already. So at some point we're going into year two, year three. Um, and the only way we feel like we can really do that is outside. But I feel like it kind of lines up with exactly what we're talking about, about, you know, being together outside will also be its own boon. Right. Its own its own positive. I just want to say that I think that we have a committee already formed now, it sounds like, all of us who want to be involved, and I think that we should all talk. All right, so I've got, I've got some Melinda, great ideas. Judith. It can be KISS-sponsored um, from our committee and everybody else joining here today at Torah Study. I've got some great ideas, and I think we should work together and make something happen amazing for next year, and I'm very excited. Awesome. This is how it happens. Y'all are watching the sausage being made. (laughs) I wanted to thank you, Rabbi, for really interpreting this portion in terms of the readiness to grow, the search for joy, the search for righteousness, rather than attending to the great punishments that were in the, uh, the threats that came up originally. So I think this was terrific, and, and not only in, in principle, but the fact that you've now got a committee to help us grow and be righteous and enjoy. So I thank you all very, very much. George raised his hand. He's on the committee. George is like, thank you all. For- <laughs> Absolutely. We need you, George. For making okay, <laughs> terrific. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you all for, uh, as always, your the quality of your attention. So Chaim said yesterday, oh, my God, aren't you going to sleep till one o'clock in the afternoon? I said, no, I'm teaching Torah study. He said, you are insane. You're a masochist is what you are. You're insane. And I said, yeah, maybe. Um, he said, you're doing this for you. I'm like, uh, maybe. <laughs> so, yes, he was right. Um, I do this for me. So um, thank you all for um, being here to be the, the post high holiday net uh, to catch me. And um, thank you for all year being just such a source of inspiration and such an incredible uh, place of enrichment and growth um, for me uh, and a place of challenge. Um, I show up differently to the text every week because um, I have to for y'all because you have certain expectations and I love that. I love that about all of you. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.